book of 1 Samuel. We also have pew Bibles in the chair in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can turn there. So we're today in 1 Samuel chapter 20. So this is a book about King Saul and then David, who would eventually become King David. And we are in this, this section of, of the book where David has been anointed as the, the future king of Israel. Uh, but now he's, he's been a fugitive. He's been on the run from King Saul. And we saw last week how Saul tried to kill David in his court, throwing a spear at him. And then he tried to kill David in his home. And he escaped through the help of his wife, McCall, and then he escaped to the, the home or the, the residence of Samuel the prophet, and the Lord supernaturally delivered David from his enemies and from Saul who was pursuing him. And we talked last week about that, that theme of divine safety, divine protection that David experienced through godly Jonathan, through an ungodly person, his wife through this direct intervention of God to protect him. But today, as we, as we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 20, we're going to be looking today at this theme of covenant love, covenant faithfulness. So again, this is First Samuel And then I'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 20. Then David fled from Nioth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do. And David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, It will be well with your servant. But if he is angry 
than know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father, should this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I, then, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May God, the Lord, be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I shouldn't die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the master was in uh, when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap and i will shoot 3 arrows to the side of it as though i shot at a mark and behold i will send the boy saying go find the arrows if i say to the boy look the arrows are on the other side of you take them then you are to come for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, 
the king sat down to eat food, and the king sat on his seat as at other times, on the seat by the wall. And Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the, to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrow that I shoot. And the boy ran. He shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, 
Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we come with hearts that often have our own ideas, that we want to take our ideas and import them into your word. But Lord, we want to export your ideas from your word. We want to see what you have for us here. We know that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we could be complete, equipped for every good work. And so we pray that you would equip us this morning again, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said today, we are looking at this theme of covenant love. Whether we recognize it or not, every single one of us here desperately needs covenant love. That it's my prayer that Hope Church would be a place that is characterized by covenant love, that that covenant love would be an attribute, a, a character of our church together. And that your life and all your different relationships could be characterized by covenant love as well. But you say, what is covenant love? That there are different types of love. We could talk about romantic love or erotic love. We could talk about covenant love. Covenant love that is one of the great themes of the Bible, and that covenant love, as the name implies, is, is love that, that flows from the relationship of covenant. But then you say, well, what is a covenant? That we hear that word covenant, but what does it mean? Well, a children's catechism that my children have memorized says that a covenant is a relationship that God establishes and guarantees by his word. Or a very well-known book on this theme of covenant by a theologian named Opamo Robinson says that a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. It's a bond because it's this relationship between two parties. It could be between two humans or between us and God. It's a bond in blood. In the Old Testament context, when you made a covenant that generally you would sacrifice an animal, that it would show the seriousness of the covenant, that the sanctions that would come on you if you break the covenant. And as we think about covenants today, that it's a a bond in blood showing just the, the seriousness of covenant, that it's it's a life and death commitment, a life and death 
covenant. And it's a bond in blood sovereignly administered because ultimately God is called as the, the witness of the covenant, the one who guarantees the covenant. And as you look at the, the Bible, the, the storyline of the Bible, covenant is one of the central themes of the Bible. That if you don't understand covenant, you really don't understand the story of the Bible. Because if you go to the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapters 1 to 3, even though you don't actually find the word covenant in the text, all the elements of a covenant are there. And it's what theologians call the covenant of works, where God entered into this covenant relationship with Adam and Eve, this bond in blood sovereignly administered where he promised life on the condition of perfect obedience and then also threatened death. On the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Of course, we know that Adam and Eve violated the covenant of works. The, the sanctions of the covenant came upon them, that they cast themselves and all of their posterity into the condition that we find ourselves today in the world. And that, in a sense, we're all born into the world in the covenant of works, this, this ruptured covenant with God that we're unable to keep, where we, we come under the, the judgment of God in this covenant relationship. But then, thankfully, God establishes another covenant. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he says that he eventually he would send the, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, who would bring salvation. And, and so this is the, the covenant of grace, not based on our obedience, but on the obedience of a mediator, the obedience of Christ, who fulfills all the conditions of the covenant of works for us, and then who, who comes to, to offer this relationship with God based on grace, not on our own works and our own ability. And so you, you read the Old Testament where we are in First Samuel, that it's the covenant of grace looking forward to the coming of Christ through sacrifices and promises and types. You read the New Testament, it's the covenant of grace looking back at the accomplished work of, of Jesus. But then at the very center of this covenant, all the way from Genesis to Revelation in the Bible, is covenant love that we experience the love of God in the context of this covenant commitment, that it's love that motivates God to enter into a covenant of grace with us, and it's love then that flows out of that covenant of grace where he, he just pours it out more and more in his love and faithfulness and deep commitment to us. That this covenant love is, is not an abstract reality. But of course, we experience other covenants, even in the modern world, on the horizontal plane with others. You could think of the covenant of marriage, a, a relationship that God establishes and guarantees by his word. Jesus says, What God has joined together, let not man separate, that it is this bond and blood sovereignly administered 
um, that, that points to the sacrifice of Jesus for us, the, the love between husband and wife. Or you could think of the, the covenant of church membership, where someone covenants into a local congregation. Uh, we had our membership seminar yesterday, and so we talked about this, this idea of covenant in the local church, this, this bond that God establishes in Christ, where we are bound as believers to one another. And that ideally, and it doesn't always function the way that it should, we know this, but in covenants of marriage, covenants of connection between believers and the church, that there should be covenant love, that it should flow out of that covenant relationship, that that is what we're called to, to cultivate, to build. But you say then, well, what does it look like? What does covenant love look like in practice? That if we're called to model covenant love in the local church, in our marriages, in our relationships, what does it look like? And that's the beautiful picture of 1 Samuel chapter 20. And you'll notice that the word covenant appears several times. Look with me at verse 8 in your Bible. David says, Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Or look at verse 16 in your Bible. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Again, this, is, this isn't romantic love. This is covenant love, that they establish a, a covenant of friendship and, and mutual commitment with one another. And we see that out of their covenant bond flows this covenant love, and we see what it looks like in practice. And so we're going to walk through this story today under three, three headings. I did two three headings, and we're going to look at covenant love in practice. And so first, covenant love is willing to have hard conversations. Covenant love is willing to have hard conversations. And you see this in verse 1 to 3 in your Bible, that Jonathan and David meet, and David is already being pursued by Jonathan's father, Saul. That we've, we've said that Jonathan, or that David has been in danger on multiple occasions from King Saul. And so David asks Jonathan, Jonathan, why is your father trying to kill me? What have I done to deserve this? And then in verse 2, Jonathan actually begins to debate and to disagree with David. And Jonathan says, far be it from my father that my father tells me everything that he does. If my father was trying to kill you, he would tell me that you're not in danger. 
course, I think, well, where has Jonathan been for the last chapter? The, I mean, David has been running for his life for an entire chapter, and somehow Jonathan seems to not recognize this or not realize what's, what's going on. And, of course, we can understand that. I mean, this is the relationship between the father, Saul, the son, Jonathan, that he wants to think the best of his father, that, that he's blind to what's actually going on. And so then you'll see how David responds in verse 3. That again, David pushes back against Jonathan and says the, the obvious thing to us that if Saul wanted to kill David, that he wouldn't tell Jonathan because he knows that Jonathan and David are friends. And so he would, of course, keep it a secret. And then you'll see in verse 4 how Jonathan relents and, and says, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. But I think that this is an, a wonderful picture of covenant love because Jonathan and David are essentially arguing. And this is a hard conversation. This is the type of conversation that we try to avoid because it involves three Ps, power, politics, and personal relationships. And, and so it's dealing with, with power because the, the, the kingship is at, say, at stake. Who's actually in control? Politics, who's going to be king? What's happening in the country? The personal relationship, because remember, Jonathan and David are friends. David is married to Jonathan's sister. Then there's Saul, and there's a relationship between David and Saul, and David and Jonathan, and so many complicated relationships. But quite often, we have a hard time entering into hard conversations. This is why so many, especially younger people, will break up with a text, because it's a lot easier to just send a text and not actually have to sit down for a difficult conversation, because we're not willing to enter into hard conversations. But that's part of our, our calling, that, that covenant love should make us willing to have hard conversations. And you could think of this in the covenant bond of marriage. That in the covenant bond of marriage, sometimes it's easier to avoid conflict altogether. That you, you don't actually engage to discuss the difficult aspects of your marriage and, and your life. And over time, that will destroy the relationship. There can obviously be very unhelpful ways of entering into conflict that you could have the, the wrong type of conflict, but also complete conflict avoidance destroys a marriage as well. That, that we are we're called out of covenant love to enter into hard conversations. That it's, it's not loving to avoid all hard conversations in life. And it's the same thing in covenant membership within a local church. Because remember, remember what Jesus says in Matthew 18, where he says that if somebody in the church sins against you, that before you go and talk about it with others, that you're called to go to that person individually, have a conversation. And he says, if the person doesn't repent to bring someone else along with you to have another hard conversation. And you, if you've ever 
done that, it's not fun. It's, it'd be so much easier to just pull, eject from the entire relationship or to just go find another church or to ignore the person. But as those in this bond sovereignly administer that we are to have this kind of covenant love and covenant commitment with one another to be able to engage in hard conversations as Jesus tells us. And of course, Jesus himself in his life and ministry, he models this perfectly. He has so many hard conversations with his disciples, with the religious leaders, with, with people around him, and he did it out of love, that he wasn't trying to be argumentative or hurtful, but he was willing to enter into hard conversations out of love. So again, what hard conversations are you called to have being motivated by covenant love? And so that's the the first lesson here, that covenant love is willing to have hard conversations. But then second, covenant love is willing to defy worldly wisdom. It's willing to have hard conversations. It's willing to defy worldly wisdom. And we see this in our text as well. Look again at what David says in verse 8. He says, Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if you look at ancient kingship and the dynamics of power, this would defy worldly wisdom. Because the the worldly wise thing for Jonathan to do would be to hand David over to his father. That, That no crown prince in the ancient world would be wise to establish a a covenant bond and commitment with the the greatest coming political rival within the kingdom, that it defies worldly wisdom. But of course, it's the the same in the other direction. Look at what Jonathan says in verse 14 and 15 in your Bible. He says that if I am still alive— this sort of somber note there, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. And that word translated steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed, this, this steadfast love, this deep covenant love. Show me the covenant love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love, your chesed, from my house forever. For the Lord when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And so he's asking David someday to defy worldly wisdom, that if David ever did take over as king, that what an ancient king would do was eliminate the political rivals, eliminate the the dynasty that came before. But yet here's David covenanting before the Lord to preserve the life of the family of his greatest political rival as well. Again, they're, they're defying worldly wisdom. But we're called to 
defy worldly wisdom in many ways as well as we think about our covenant relationships. Think about the covenant relationship of marriage, that quite often worldly wisdom says that, that your number one priority should be your own personal happiness and personal satisfaction. And so the worldly wisdom would say, if a relationship is hard, get out as quickly as you can. Don't spend time working on a relationship because people rarely change. And so the worldly wisdom would say, just pursue your best life and and don't maintain this relationship. But what you see in Scripture is, is this sense of the the importance of marriage and the, the call to, to work on this covenant relationship, to, to sacrifice, to, to guard and to protect and to, to build and to reconcile the relationship that, that quite often can, can push against the, the worldly wisdom and expectation of society around us. But of course, it's the same with covenant relationships within a local church as well where worldly wisdom says, go find a community of people who have the same interests, who look like you, who talk like you, who, who will support the same things that you support. But when you come into a local church that you, you're with people that, that you maybe didn't choose to be friends with, that we have people even at Hope Church with, with different backgrounds or come from different cultures or people who have different political views or different approaches to life. And the, the, the worldly wisdom would say, why bother having a friendship and a connection to people who may disagree with you on, on key issues? But when you're connected to one another in Christ and the, the bond of Christian relationship, well, then we, we act in a different way, that it defies worldly wisdom. And of course, this is what Jesus did in his ministry as well. That he defied worldly wisdom when he chose his disciples as these uneducated fishermen. He defied worldly wisdom when he spent time with tax collectors and sinners and the the lowest people in the, the hierarchy of society. That he defied worldly wisdom ultimately on the cross. That worldly wisdom says that Salvation and deliverance comes through strength and victory and power and might. But that Jesus defies worldly wisdom on the cross by showing that the victory came through humility and suffering and sacrifice. Of course, it's that sacrifice that was motivated by his covenant love for you and for me in the covenant of grace. So again... Where are you called to defy worldly wisdom out of covenant love for others? So that's our second lesson here, our second heading. But then here's the, the third and final. So we've said that, we're, that covenant love drives us to, if I get my right page there to covenant love is is willing to have hard conversations covenant love is willing to defy worldly wisdom and then third and and finally covenant love 
is willing to suffer for the sake of others. Covenant love is willing to suffer for the sake of others. And you see this in our our text. In verse 11 to 23, uh, you see this plan that David and Jonathan concoct where David's going to hide in the field. And there he says that, that we'll tell the king that I've gone away to offer sacrifice in my father's house in Bethlehem. And if he asks where I am and you tell him and he seems fine, then we know that everything's all right. But if he's angry, then we'll know that he intends harm. And then they have this plan of how to give the, the message, uh, which again, in, in the, the course of the Bible, sometimes the Bible relates stories in a very direct, pared-down way. But even within the Old Testament, I mean, this is one of the more dramatic, detailed accounts of historical events. And, and so you can see the, the drama of it that, that Jonathan is thinking, well, I don't know who's going to be with me. So I may have servants of Saul with me when I go out to the field. And I, it'll be suspicious if I send them away and so we have to have some sort of nonverbal plan where I can get the message. And so they shoots the arrow and depends on where he directs the, the young boy to grab the arrow, which will have the, the, the message of what's supposed to happen. And so then they, they begin to implement the plan. Jonathan goes to the court of King Saul. He sits at the king's table. And so the, the first night... Saul looks around, he sees the empty seat where Jonathan, or sorry, where David would normally sit. And he, and he says, surely he's unclean, that he's unclean in the Old Testament ceremonial system, but he'll be here tomorrow. And then he doesn't show up the next day, his, his seat is still empty. And so he asks his son, where is the, the son of Jesse? He won't even use his name. And then Jonathan reports and says that he has gone away to make a sacrifice, and I gave him permission, leave to go. And we'll talk next week about the, the lie, because there is a lie and a falsehood here, so this is something that will come on the next chapter, so you can kind of hold that question of whether it was right or wrong for him to lie to his father. But his father just explodes in rage. Look at verse 30. And then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And so you can see this, these harsh, demeaning words from Saul. And perhaps you've had a parent speak to you like this. These harsh, abusive words. Maybe you've had someone else that you love speak to you, and you know the, the pain that Jonathan must have been feeling as his father not only cast shame on him, but even on his mother. And then Jonathan steps out very bravely and speaks out for David again. And then you see that 
Saul hurls the spear at Jonathan. And it says that, that Jonathan, he leaves the court of his father. And then one of the, the great obvious statements where he says, So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And so finally, the, the reality of the situation, all of his denial up until this point, finally crashes in. He recognizes what's actually happening. And, and he feels the, the shame and the, the anger. Because remember that this was an, an, a shame-honor society. And his father had completely dishonored him in the, the presence of presumably royal officials, casting shame on Jonathan, shame on David. And this grieves Jonathan deeply. But the key thing to notice is that Jonathan was willing to suffer out of covenant love for David. That he, he suffered reproach, even suffering in his own personal safety. And that for us, covenant love should also motivate us to suffer for the sake of others. It could be to speak up for someone in need and to, to suffer or to suffer for showing hospitality to others, or to, to suffer for acts of service. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1.24, where he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That Paul saw his sufferings as actually suffering for others in the church out of this deep covenant love and covenant commitment to other believers. But then, of course, this is what Jesus models for us preeminently, that he suffered throughout his ministry out of covenant love. And ultimately, when he, he suffered and died for us on the cross, and what, what was motivating that suffering and that death was covenant love, this eternal covenant love of God for his people. So again, where are you called to suffer out of covenant love. But then as we wrap up and look at the end of our passage today, you'll see how the, the story ends, this very touching moment where Jonathan goes out into the field. He has the young boy with him. And they, they follow the plan. He shoots the arrow. The, the boy runs ahead. He says, no, go beyond the arrow. So I kind of feel bad for the boy, in a way, having to go running out in the fields on this goose chase for the arrow. Uh, but he comes back with the arrow, and Jonathan sees the opportunity to send this young boy away. The text notes that the, the boy didn't know anything of what was happening. He sends him home with his weapons. And then David comes out, bowing down. And it says that they were, they were weeping. And the text notes that, that David was weeping even more than Jonathan. And it's important to remember that these are, these are manly men. <laughs> Both of them have fought great battles. These are, these are strong, manly men. Uh, and there's a, a great book called A Godly Man's Picture. And one of the chapters in that book is entitled that a godly man is a crying man. That the, and you, you see it here that it wasn't a shame for them to to weep and to, to cry, to express this, this sense of emotion to one another. And then look at how David ends their relationship. That this is the last interaction between these dear friends 
before their parted ways and never to, to be able to experience their, their friendship and fellowship again. And Jonathan said to David, this is verse 42, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city. So here you see Jonathan saying, go in peace. That the, the Hebrew word is shalom, this, this deep peace. But it, it feels almost unbelievable because they're not going in peace. That David is going into this long season of, of conflict. Jonathan is going into this long season of conflict that will eventually result in his death and the death of his father, that they're not going in any sort of outward peace, and that really the, the peace that is offered here is the, the peace that, that comes out of covenant love, the covenant bond, this, this inner peace, and, and ultimately the peace that isn't rooted in just Jonathan and David's covenant relationship, but it's the peace that they knew in God's covenant of grace, looking to God's provision of a future coming Messiah, the, the inner peace of knowing that God is with them, that God will protect them, that God is the ultimate one who is working. And this is the same for us, that, that when your marriage is filled with covenant love, that the, the fruit is peace, or when the church is filled with covenant love, that the fruit is peace. That that is the longing that as we seek peace, ultimately this, this peace is, is not found in ourselves or anything in our immediate world, but it's what we see here in this meal. That is, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we see the, the way to, to go in peace. And it's not through what we have done, but it's through Jesus. Because this blood is, is, a, is a sign of the covenant. Remember we said that this, one of the central themes of the Bible is covenant. When Jesus was with his disciples at the Last Supper, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. This meal is a, is a celebration of covenant love, that Jesus dined with his disciples out of covenant love, he went to the cross out of covenant love. He gave, gives us this meal as a sign of his covenant love. And it's a way of growing and fostering covenant love among us as we participate in this together. And if you're here and you've never put your trust in Jesus, we're, we're so glad you're here. But if, if you have not entered into covenant relationship with God, then to take a covenant sign— which is what this is, would be hypocrisy, not truly what you believe, and that it wouldn't, wouldn't be spiritually good for you. That hypocrisy never does good for us. It only damages us and those around us. And so we would want to protect you from that. But for the rest, you don't have to be a member of Hope Church or Presbyterian Church, but to be one who has put your trust in Jesus, repenting of your sins, trusting in Jesus— being brought into that covenant relationship with Christ, the relationship that God establishes and guarantees by his word, the, the bond and blood sovereignly administered in covenant with Jesus, 
and to come not because you have it all together or because you've been perfect this week, but coming out of this recognition of God's covenant love for you that is the ultimate foundation of your peace, that you can go in peace. So we come ultimately then as those that can profess the faith that we hold together. So turn with me in your, in your bulletin to, to page 9. And we'll profess the faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed. This ancient statement of belief that we use because it helps us remember the very heart of the, the storyline of the Bible, of this great covenant story of what Jesus has done for us. So please read with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Because on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup, the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So come whenever you're ready. You can come down the, the center aisle here. Tom and I will be here. I can break off a piece of bread and give it to you. You can take the cup. We have gluten-free here if you need it. So when you come up, you can just grab one of the cups here that has both the juice and the bread. And then if mobility is an issue, you can raise your hand, and Ernie is happy to bring um, this to you as well. And then we'll take it together at the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your covenant, the, the bond in blood sovereignly administered, that you pour out your promises upon us. And we thank you for your covenant love, that you don't love us with a, a fleeting emotional love that could be here today and gone tomorrow, but you love us with the deep abiding love of, of covenant that, that has faithfulness and commitment, that it's, it's guaranteed by your promises, sealed with the, the blood of Christ, your work for us from beginning to end. And so today, Father, we pray that in all of our relationships, whether it's covenant relationships in marriage or the church or just other relationships that we have in our life, we pray that, that we can be a source of, of covenant love, that we would be willing to enter into hard conversations for covenant love, that we'd be willing to defy worldly wisdom, be willing to, to suffer for the sake of others as we pursue Christ in our daily walk. And we pray that this meal would be a tool, an instrument 
in your grace to strengthen us for that calling. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Christ's body for you. The blood of the new covenant for you.
Now, please stand with me if you're able. One of the reasons that, that we chose this last song is, as I was working through the, the sermon text, one of the commentary 